Hello, listeners. What is going on? It is time for another wonderful installment of the Raw Talk podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. For our 28th episode, I sat down with Dr. Andrash Nodge, who's a senior investigator and stem cell master at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute. Among many other feats, his group is well known for improving the understanding and delivery of induced pluripotent stem cells, a particular kind of stem cell that's made from reprogramming adult human cells. Together, we traced the history of stem cell research, talked about the allure of regenerative medicine, and speculated on the future of the field, particularly in the context of treating human disease. Dr. Naj also shares his wisdom about taking on and managing high-risk research projects and tells the budding academic what it takes to make it in the big world of science. When you're done listening, let us know what you thought of this episode by getting at us on social media at Raw Talk Podcast. Your love and support is truly what keeps us from burning out in the lab. All right, there's no time to waste. Let's dive in. There was ethical issue definitely when we didn't have the new stem cell, which we called induced pluripotent stem cell, discovered by Shinya Yamanaka, who just got the Nobel Prize in 2012, for this discovery that well, we can generate this embryonic stem cell-like cells as potent as an embryonic stem cell from any adult individual, from skin, from blood, from even cells from the urine. Uh, which is the least uh, invasive, perhaps, uh, mm-hmm. as a cell source. So with embryonic stem cells, there are ethical issues, definitely, but the whole thinking about using embryonic stem cell-derived cells as therapeutic cells to treat uh, degenerative diseases started already at that time. And in Canada, we were the first who established uh, human embryonic stem cell lines back in 2004-2005 in collaboration with our... IVF clinic here, here in the Mount Sinai. And obviously we were questioned so that uh, by ethicists, public, yes. politicians, journalists about the ethical concern here. And my answer was that, that uh, those who were questioning and saying that you are destroying human embryos, my answer was that, that no, we are not destroying them, we are saving them. Saving them from being discarded because you know, they're well-accepted in vitro fertilization technology, which really helps infertile human couple. And more than a million babies have been produced since this medicine actually entered to the clinic. This activity generates lots of early, early human embryos mm-hmm. will be never being used for reproduction. Parents just don't want more than two or three children. Uh, however, this technology creates um, or generates 10 to 15 embryos, and they are keeping the surplus, let's say that, embryos uh, frozen for mm-hmm. several years. But after four, five, ten years, they decide not to pay for freezing because they realize that they are not going to use these embryos for reproduction. And then they ask the clinic to discard those. And the clinic, this is when the clinic actually offers options. Instead of discarding, will you be okay to, to offer these embryos for research? And the first phase of research is research to improve the in vitro fertilization technology 
and make it better, more efficient. And some patients, our patients, um, parents, says that yes, we are offering our embryos to improve the technology of in vitro fertilization for future infertile couples. And uh, some of them said that we want also to offer our embryos for embryonic stem cell research. And this is where we actually get access to these embryos when the parents decide that instead of discarding human embryos, which are no longer needed for reproduction, uh, they offer these embryos for embryonic stem cell research, where these cell embryos can be used to establish embryonic stem cell lines, and these cells can treat and cure other human beings. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Anton and James here. As you just heard, Dr. Nagy was part of an interdisciplinary task force which established Canada's first stem cell lines here in Toronto. Not sure if many of you know this, but Canada has been at the forefront of stem cell research for many decades now. As Alan Bernstein, the CEO and president of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research once put it, if Canada's game is hockey, it's science is stem cell. So what have we learned from stem cell research and ultimately where do we hope this line of work will take us? Now before I get into the enthusiasm surrounding this field, let's take a step back and trace the steps that have gotten us to where we are today. Although the existence of stem cells has been known since the late 19th century, it was the work of two Canadian scientists at the University of Toronto that really helped us understand human biology and provided a new way of thinking about the treatment of cancer and other degenerative diseases. Exactly. Doctors James Till and Ernest McCullough showed that a group of cells, multipotent stem cells, were able to make red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, the main constituents of blood, and at the same time had the ability to self-replicate. Hold on a sec. You mentioned multipotent stem cells, but we just heard Dr. Nagy talk about pluripotent stem cells. How do these differ? That's a good question. The potency of stem cells, or their ability to differentiate into different types of cells, exists as a spectrum. Pluripotent cells can give rise to all of the types of cells in the human body. A good example of these are embryonic stem cells. On the other hand, multipotent stem cells are more limited in terms of the variety of cells that they can produce. So what makes them so special? What makes stem cells so special is that they have the ability to develop into any kind of functional cells in the human body, which holds great promise for these cells to regenerate or replenish damaged tissue that cause incurable diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and spinal cord injury. Mm, that sounds a little too good to be true. Is there any way to get around having to use embryonic stem cells, as some consider it to be unethical? As we just heard from Dr. Nagy, the ethical issue can be avoided by using induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS cells. IPS cells can actually be generated by taking almost any cell line in the human body and reverting them back to the pluripotent state they were derived from. What's important is that since we were able to produce pluripotent stem cells from any cell line, like skin cells for example, there's no longer a need for embryonic stem cells as a starting point which gets around these ethical issues. Okay, wow, that is pretty cool. But has this work produced any results in clinic yet? Actually, the FDA approved its first clinical trial involving human embryonic stem cells back in 2009 for patients with spinal cord injuries. Unfortunately, no significant changes to the spinal cord or neurological condition were found, and the study was discontinued shortly after. Ah, that's unfortunate. So, is stem cell therapy a pipe dream, or is there now new hope of translation into the clinic? James, what is the current state of the field? Currently, only bone marrow transplants have implemented stem cell therapy into clinical practice. 
However, researchers in other areas of healthcare, such as vision loss and spinal cord injury, have begun clinical trials. As one can imagine, there are still a lot of questions that need to be addressed. So scientists are currently exploring methods on not only how to obtain a sufficient amount of these cells for clinical utility and how to best deliver them, but also how to maximize their treatment efficacy while reducing harm. So is embryonic stem cell research still active? Embryonic stem cell research is still active. We think of where we are working on both with embryonic stem cells and uh, induced pluripotent cells. Yes. Which, uh, and I wanted to ask you about those. So for the yeah. listener who maybe is not as informed, so iPSCs, as you mentioned, these were developed by the Yamanaka group yes. in, so this I want to say, 2006? 2006 in a mouse, 2007 in human. So essentially the publications what they came out. And that was a pretty landmark publication for them. Yes. So essentially what they found was that if you treat a cell, so a somatic cell that's already been developed and it already has sort of a fate, if you treat it with these four transcription factors, which I guess they introduced through a, a viral method, you're able to essentially have the cell travel back in time and become a cell that is in its earlier developmental state. Yes. So how, how exactly is that possible? How is it that these, you know, it almost sounds like magic when you say these four factors, when they start being expressed in the cell, can get the cell to revert to an earlier phase. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't really sound like magic. It is magic. So this is really magic, so that it's just mind-boggling that now four transcription factors are capable of doing it. And uh, Yamanaka's group were able to identify these four factors of maybe 1,600 transcription factors that we have among our genes. Can you speculate on what turns on the switch? So once these factors start being expressed? So, I mean, these, these transcription factors are really, really highly expressed in early embryo. So just uh, right after fertilization. So practically the idea was, and then this is which led to this discovery, that to characterize those transcription factors, which are uh, specifically expressed in early embryonic stages, and narrow kind of down for candidates of uh, which is necessary for this stage, what is called pluripotency, where the cells can be differentiated, not differentiated, but has the ability to differentiate a huge spectrum of different cell types. So that uh, characterization of uh, gene expression at that early stage led to narrowing down those uh, transcription factors just look like essential for this pluripotent stage down to 20. And then it was a very smart experiment to just use this 20 force express this 20 in somatic cells, differentiated cells like skin cells, and see what's happening. And then they observed colony formation, looked like embryonic stem cells instead of ugly skin cells. <laughs> and uh, uh, then, but then the search came that do we need all the 20? And uh, it was a nice design that to narrow it down to the essential four which actually was able to create this embryonic stem cell looking colonies. And then after that, the question was that, are they just looking like embryonic stem cells or they are actually have the developmental potential? And uh, in fact, it was amazing that it, they were not just looking like embryonic stem cells as far as the morphology is concerned, but when they placed into a differentiated conditions, 
they were able to change to any type of cells, like, just like Blood, embryonic neuron, stem cells. Anything. Yes, yeah. Or making chimeras. What the embryonic stem cells could do in the mouse system, obviously, not in the human. So your group then took that one step further because I think the concern there was if you use viral vectors to introduce these factors, then they might integrate anywhere in the DNA and then sort of cause problems, just disrupt existing genes and so on. Yes. And you were able to use the piggyback transposable system, eliminating the need for the virus. Yep. So yep. that was an additional breakthrough. Yes, it was. I mean, honestly, so that uh, the human iPS cell story came out in 2007. So immediately a race started that who will be the first one who could generate iPS cells without viral integration into the genome because the original method of Yamanaka was using viruses and all these reprogrammed cells contained uh, 30 to 40 random integration sites of the virus delivering these four transcription factors. And uh, just because of that, no one actually was thinking about using these cells ever uh, to put it into a human being because of the high risk that these random integrations are going to destroy something essential for normal cell behavior. So that's where, as I said, the race started. So mm-hmm. there were at least five or six laboratories tried to be smart and figure out the way of generating iPS cells without kind of modifying the genome or integrating into the genome randomly or changing the genome, even with just whatever way. I mean, we went to the transposon ways because the transposon has a very interesting property so that they, they are mobile DNA elements. They can integrate into the genome, but the same enzyme which makes the integration of the transposon into the genome, which called transposase, could also jump out uh, the transposon after the transposon delivered transgene, finished its job, made the reprogramming, changed the cells back into an embryonic stem cell like pluripotent cell state. They can make perfectly functional uh, insulin producer cells or neurons or liver cells. For the therapeutic perspective, it doesn't really matter if the source is just like embryonic stem cells completely or iPS cells, which is, has the potential, but not exactly the same. And in fact, in some ways, better if the cell is derived from that same individual who then becomes... Yes, I mean, that's the big advantage. Then, you know, before the iPS cells, we had embryonic stem cells, but these are coming from embryos and not from... And uh, the embryo is not developing into a human. So it is a special cell line. This is no equivalent human being uh, to this cell type. So this cell type can be used as a organ transplantation nowadays, which is going, we have to look for matches uh, with the patient uh, of histocompatibility matches, uh, just like uh, in uh, heart and organ and liver transplantation, which also means that if somebody gets ESL-derived therapeutic cells to treat a disease, and the match is not complete, which is most of the case, that patient has to go on immunosuppression. So I imagine that you spent the past decade sort of trying to figure out how they work. So stability, how do you get them to turn into different kinds of cells? So what, what exactly is this technology about? Things like that. So has it paid off? 
I mean, that's a good question. So that because um, there were an enormous expectation uh, when the iPS cell came out that how how these cells are going to cure human and. Uh, the ability of generating these cells from any human being, even from patients, really created an enormous excitement. Everybody expected that now it's just a couple of years and right. then we'll have uh, all the degenerative diseases. Why cured. is that, by right. the way? Because, I mean, the people who are sick are desperate. They are looking for solutions. Yes. I mean, that's, uh, and uh, it really opens, opened up immediately lots of hope for those devastating diseases like blindness multiple sclerosis, stroke, spinal cord injury. So and these you know, patients are really, really looking for solutions so that they, and then a timely solutions. And then that's why there was a major excitement. And it was not without any foundation. So yes. that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's there, but we have to actually approach this very carefully so that uh, because we have to make sure that with any new medicine or treatment, we are not uh, creating harm. And that's a basic principle in medicine, so that we have to make sure that uh, our treatment is not creating harm. On the other hand, all the treatment has its own risk. So that's, that's what we have to know about medicine. That's what we have to know about also the stem cell treatment. What's the odds that something goes wrong and it requires lots of careful approaches, definition, good experiments, good thinking, then how we can actually attach a number which reflects the odds of something goes wrong if somebody gets a cell therapy, for example. Anton and I are back to expand on the hype surrounding stem cells and how this hype sometimes turns out to be detrimental. As Dr. Nagy was just discussing, there are and will continue to be patients suffering from debilitating diseases for which current therapeutics just aren't getting the job done. With all these individuals desperate for help, and justifiably so, a great deal of excitement has built since Yamanaka's breakthrough in the mid-2000s. And while there certainly is reason to believe that these magical little cells will eventually be used in the clinic after further breakthroughs in the lab, all the hope and excitement has led to some unrealistic expectations. So the reality of scientific discovery is simply that it takes time. Even with the researchers all around the world working on the same problem, it takes decades for discoveries to be made that pass strict regulations as patient safety is always the number one concern. This is where stem cell hype can unfortunately lead to harm. With all the patients that can't find relief using regulated treatments at our disposal, some are turning to stem cell tourism. Clinics all around the world, including China, India, and Latin America, market unproven stem cell therapies to patients suffering from a wide variety of diseases. And these treatments don't come cheap. At tens of thousands of dollars a pop, the patient is shelling out big bucks for false hope, while the clinic turns out high profits. As Timothy Caulfield, a Canadian research chair at the University of Alberta put it, stem cell tourism hurts the legitimacy of the entire field of stem cell research. The crazy thing is, some of these clinics are closer to home than you may think. There are countless reports of clinics in the states offering unproven stem cell therapies. The shockingly inadequate oversight at the state and federal level has resulted in people getting hurt. Earlier in 2017, Health Canada investigated private clinics right here in Canada selling unproven stem cell therapies to verify compliance with the Foods and Drugs Act. A key matter in this issue is that these clinics may be only minimally manipulating existing treatments and injecting them into the knee or hip, for example. 
This minimal manipulation doesn't need approval from Health Canada. However, it is vital for the public and patient to overcome the perception that such a treatment is a pure stem cell procedure. Although high expectations from the public means greater funding and enthusiasm in stem cell research, it has also led to more scientific competition. While healthy competition often leads to innovation, the other end of the spectrum can enable questionable research ethics. In 2014, a group of scientists at Riken Research Institute in Japan published two articles in Nature that claimed a major advance in the field of stem cells. They demonstrated that physical stress could do what Yamanaka accomplished with transcription factor manipulation, which is transform adult cells into pluripotent stem cells. However, after discovery of errors in the work and inability to replicate findings, the group was forced to retract both publications. This scandal shook the stem cell world, and the lead scientist, Haruko Obokata, was found guilty of misconduct. Her mentor and co-author on the articles, Yoshiki Sasai, was cleared of misconduct, but was heavily criticized for inadequate supervision of the lead scientist. Shortly after the retraction, he took his own life at the Ricken Institute, and many media reports linked it to the controversy and subsequent repercussions. So now that we have learned why all the stem cell hype can be damaging to the patient and the scientific community, what can we really do about it? Well, we can engage our peers in academia or even friends and family who may be curious about what stem cells have to offer and what perceptions might need to be changed. In fact, that's what a group of scientists and medical journalists set out to do a couple months ago with the hashtag stem cell hype on Twitter. We learned that although marketing to consumer stem cell-based therapies can have a louder voice than scientists, a growing number of researchers are contributing to a body of work detailing the ethical and scientific problems of these dubious practices. Hopefully, through this online and offline discussion, we'll be able to take the fuel out of the hype. Back to you, Richie. So what kind of things are you working on to assess that kind of safety and efficacy? So, I mean, that's, that's we recognized a few years ago that this is a critical issue, so that it has to be solved in order to get a wide acceptance of cell-based therapy and then get this um, new medicine into the clinic, full power. And one of the major projects in my lab is practically addressing the safety and trying to define mathematically uh, what safety means. And edit the genome of the cells in a way that we can control the cell division mm -hmm. from outside and making sure that these cells will never be able to form tumors. And that's because tumor formation is the big concern in cell therapies, which is there so that we know that if we are generating therapeutic cells, and depending on the disease, you need different numbers of these cells. Yes. Treat blindness, for example, probably you will be okay with about one million cells. And one million cells is not too many. However, when we were thinking about treating cardiac infarct, the infarct area needs about 10 billion cells, 10 to 100 billion cells to be injected to have a therapeutic effect on the regeneration of that area of the heart. Generating 100 billion cells in vitro is a huge task. There's many cell divisions, many DNA replications. The DNA replication is error-prone. Yes. It's not safe, not 100%. So there are mutations. We actually even know the mutation rate from many, many studies. So that's where the whole safety issue is with the cell therapy. So you have to make sure that 
this no huge number of cells that we are generating and putting into human is not going to form tumors. So that's why we are trying not to address this, calculate this, what's the chance, but also creating a smart kind of suicide system in the cells where we can, this drug, inducibly, eliminate those cells which are extensively dividing or become cancers and leaving those which are quiescent, nice, and re regenerating alone for their function, but having a massive control on those who are kind of runaway type of cells and then we lose control because we can eliminate those. Plenty of challenges, plenty of challenges in this, in this field, but also incredibly fascinating to think about how far we've come in only, what, 10, 15 years? Yeah since, yeah. since the discovery of these iPS cells? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, as I said, it started with ES cells or embryonic stem cells. And uh, iPS cells is just brought in an additional step. But uh, the real breakthrough was uh, the embryonic stem cell. Even I can say the really, really breakthrough was the human embryonic, or the mouse embryonic stem cells back in uh, 1981. Uh, or even before, uh, the cloning of the frog, right, which showed that with the environment, uh, in, in cytoplasmic environment, we can reprogram a nucleus, a DNA of a somatic cell. So this is the thing which is kind of difficult to tell, which was the biggest leap toward what, where we are now. But uh, it's really true so that uh, it led to a very, very new, totally transforming conceptually transforming area, what we think about our cells and uh, we think about our medicine, think about our diseases, think about how we are going to treat and cure our diseases. And the whole field of regenerative medicine just became enormously exciting. To the outsider looking in, it almost seems like you are on a discovery hot streak in the sense of you're finding one thing and then you're taking that one step further and then you're generating additional discoveries and sort of that, that's shaping the field further and further and giving you uh, and your group a broader understanding of what's going on. But in fact, you take on very high-risk projects. I mean, these, these projects, even 20 years ago, you know, with the IPS cell, that almost would have been unheard of. Uh, right. In some ways, unimaginable that you could just take any cell and then turn it back into uh, an earlier stage and then get that to develop into something else. So you, or I guess more accurately, your students are probably very used to dealing with failure when experiments don't work out. So how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, there are several filtering steps for the students and postdocs who are joining the lab. So that uh, one is practically who are approaching so that they, they're reading. They knew what type of stories are coming out from this lab. They also already know that uh, these are, we call it high-risk and high-impact projects. And there is always a risk, obviously. And uh, when uh, they come to these labs, I emphasize it even more that, you know, you think about it, this is really, this lab is uh, it's not an easy lab. We do really high-risk, high-impact projects, which is, if it works, it's beautiful. If it doesn't work, it could be a sufferer. And a lot then, of time. Uh, right, yeah. And then it could actually lead to a change you know, in the middle of the project or a year after. And just think about it. 
And if you want to have an easy uh, master or uh, easy PhD, you might want to go somewhere else. Yes. But if you are a good uh, gambler, then take your chance. Feeling lucky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it requires lots of work and uh, lots of commitment and uh, able to handle the stress. And some students said that, yeah, yeah, I understand that, and then I, I would rather go to somewhere else. Some said that, you know, I don't care. I, I just want to do this. I want to work in this lab. Then when we start, and then usually my students have at least two projects uh, to start with, the A and the B, parallel. Right. Is one a safe project and the other one sort no, of high both risk? High risk. Well, both high risk. Both high risk. Both, but at least you have less chance that both can go wrong. That's and, right. Yeah, so you yeah, probably and, meet with and, your and students that, regularly and ask, so how is it going? Tell me about your results. Yeah. What's working for you? What's not working for you? So right. at what point do you say, I think we're chasing a dead end. We should probably stop here. I mean, is that, is that a factor of the methods that are being used or the question that's being asked that something is not working? Yeah, it's quite complex system or, or, or issue here because uh, you have a project and uh, you start working on it and there are two possibilities. You have a hypothesis and everything is like working like dream toward the hypothesis. This is where after a year or so I start to be really kind of afraid instead of happy. Because what we really, we really like in this lab that when we have an initial hypothesis and a year after we are start working on it, everything is moving, moving, but it hits something which, is unex, which was unexpected. We didn't expect, didn't fit to the hypothesis, but it's strong, you know, strong that, you know, there's something happening here where it doesn't fit, you know? And this is where some students start panicking. Oh, wow. No, it's, it's just everything is wrong here. This is when we have a good talk. Nothing wrong here. Yeah. This is where the whole thing starts to be exciting because we reached the point where we realized that our hypothesis was wrong at the beginning. And this is the best ever which could happen with a project because now we opened a, a, an area, a field, a door where nobody actually expected what is happening there, right? So these are the new things. These are the nature papers. These are the cell papers, high impact paper, where we reach something which we didn't expect. The black box. Yeah, but then it, you, don't, you don't turn back. You, don't, you just enter into this black box instead of panicking and say that, wow, my hypothesis was wrong. Okay, let's make another hypothesis, right? right? What nobody actually is able to do because they didn't reach the point, right? Everybody was thinking in the same way how we were thinking two years ago and the hypothesis and derived the hypothesis. Great, the hypothesis was wrong, right? Now we are just going to discover something new. And that's the, where the exciting, exciting thing is happening. There are also situations where, you know, things are simply just not moving and not even entering a point where we are contradict with our hypothesis, but yes. we are just not moving. And this is where we stop the project and say that, okay, let's go for the project B. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the exciting thing is really, and that's where the high risk, high impact is coming, yeah. is that where high risk because the hypothesis is shaky, right? 
So it is, we are actually looking for the conflict with the hypothesis. And that's where the new things You're are. You're embracing the unexpected. Right. Yeah. Right. All under the pressure of grant funding deadlines and yeah, yeah, all of yeah. that. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's very yeah. exciting. So do you still generate new ideas? I mean, are people approaching you now and saying, hey, I was thinking about this. What do you think about this? Do you want to try this with me? How does that work? I mean, this is a teamwork here. So that the lab is just, it's an amazing lab. Everybody is generating ideas, including me, right? But I can say that including me, not dominating the ideas. So the, the lab is generating the ideas. What we have here is about uh, the Nagy lab, right? Mm. And not about uh, the boss, right? Right. Uh, and uh, the boss is really creating the framework, creating this playground and the soul for idea generation. But everybody is involved in the idea generation. Uh, technicians, summer students, master students, postdocs, the PI. We had very, very intensive lab meetings, discussions, also between lab meetings. The people are working together. They are quite aware of each other's projects. Our lab meeting is more like a mini symposium every week where not just one person talks, but three, four, 20 minutes each. It's a progress report. And everybody has its turn every four or five weeks. And uh, we are really quite aware of uh, all the projects which is happening in the lab, not just uh, the individual project, what the students and postdocs are working on. So they, they know where the other person is with his or her project. And this is good because practically uh, they contribute into each other's projects with comments and help and why don't you do this? Right. The kind of thing. So that it's, 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 it's wonderful. I it mean, sounds this is, very permissive. It sounds like you're allowing ideas to kind of flow. You're not micromanaging the students. You're not saying, okay, this is what you're going to do and this is what you're going to do. And hopefully things move in this direction. You're kind of saying, okay, who's got ideas? You let me know what you've done thus far. And we can kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's, well, that's the power uh, of uh, this united uh, intellectual field where you know, we have uh, 20-something brains working together, interconnected, like the internet. Not with wire, but um, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, voice. <laughs> Absolutely. So just to get a little bit more speculative, you know, we talk about we have these new technologies and ideally we can then use them to treat complex disorders. Where do you see the field going in five to ten years? I mean, it's difficult to predict so that there are diseases which are already out there and then uh, cell-based therapies are happening like uh, blindness and spinal cord injury perhaps is going to be the next one. As I said immediately when uh, the safety issue is going to be solved and then this is what we are working very hard. Do you think that's realistic? Do you think that's a resolvable issue? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, actually, we have a good grab on it so that we, have, we hope very much that uh, uh, immediately when our publication comes out so that it's going to have an impact on the field and then going to accelerate uh, the use of cells for, to treat disease. And then, uh, obviously, there are diseases which likely going to be easier to treat with cells. And there are diseases which is not as much, so that the organ damage is just too complex. But there are other additional efforts, obviously, so that which probably could create organs. 
quite interesting area is now to generate organs in farm animals, for example. And there's a huge effort now to utilize. As a paper just came out a week ago, so that's showing uh, chimeras, interspecies chimeras, where you can grow rat pancreas in the mouse or mouse pancreas in the rat, and uh, that is functional and practically a good treat or cure diabetes, where it was actually grown in another species. So that's where we see that, you know, fields are very, very quickly developing and getting together from many different directions and all about uh, how we are going to treat human with cells, with tissue, with organs uh, in the future. And as I said, that some diseases are closer some diseases are further away because it's just more challenging, uh, but it's happening so that it's coming and you know, we are going to get there. Do you ever see stem cells penetrating into, say, uh, a consumer sphere? So you have some kind of injury, you know, you fell or you tore a muscle or something like that, and you go to your physician and he's able to just give you an injection and then, oh, a couple of days later you're feeling better? You know, a lot of people who maybe uh, train, they do martial arts or sports, uh-huh. mm-hmm. are very susceptible to these kinds of injuries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes surgery is not possible or it kind of means that you'll never play again. Yeah. Uh, so do you see stem cells entering into this realm as well? Yeah, I mean, that's not, not too far, uh, not, too, not too weird uh, science fiction. So that we're really working also on off-the-shelf product, cell products, which is readily available whenever it is needed immediately, even for acute situations. So it is just a matter of time and a matter of getting these cells to be accepted by the regulations, because that's also something that we have to deal with. There's a very important uh, that we have uh, regulations in how we are going to use these cells just to make sure that we are not causing harm uh, with these. And then that's where we not, not just have to develop or we are developing treatment for diseases, but now we are also thinking about how we are, what, we, what do we have to do to get these new treatments accepted by our regulatory network or system. Well, it's been incredibly fascinating talking to you about this. It always makes me feel like when we are sort of at the cutting edge like this, that it's just the beginning and that in some years we're going to see something very fascinating, yes. very big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any advice for the student that's in a lab, maybe not too different from yours, and is kind of stuck on a project, not sure what they want to do, not sure how it's going? Yeah, I mean, the students, uh, probably they know even better than I that this now it is really a very, very exciting era that we entered in medicine. And uh, this new concept, uh, which is based on treatment of degenerative diseases by cell is, is entering to a field. This will have a massive impact on human, on human health and also the quality of the life. Students, if they are readily recognize and then have some interest and their affinity to medical research, biology, understanding life, should enter this field instead of going to business area where they can maybe get more money, better life. Right. Uh, but uh, I don't think that our life is not good. So yep. our life is really good, very exciting and demanding. 
but uh, I mean, that's what we like uh, to play. And I really encourage the students to test this out because there's a lot of satisfaction could come out from such a, a life where the, your life is uh, full of discoveries practically every day. Absolutely. You're yeah. really, you're standing on the edge. Right. Well, there you have it. Dr. Naj, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. And we'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. And also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. It doesn't really sound like magic. It is magic.